be in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can be together. Thank you that we can study it. Our prayer, Lord, is that we might have open ears, ears to hear what you're saying, that we might have open hearts, hearts willing to listen, willing to obey, willing to follow through in our lives. Lord, help this not be just some sort of academic exercise this morning. But Lord, that we might see your heart for us, your heart for our witness. The power that you've given us to witness effectively. Oh Lord, we know it all starts with a salvation that we do not deserve and could not earn. But that you offer it to us freely by putting our trust in your son Jesus and his work on Calvary's cross. Thank you that when we put our trust in him, we pass from death to life, never, never to worry about death again. We become a part of your family. We are given eternal life, abundant living with you now, life with you forever. All because we put our trust in you, not ourselves, not religion, not good works. Thank you for so great a salvation. Help us to listen to you with a heart to obey you in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever think about the technological marvel that cars are today? I'm just, uh, it's just marvelous to me the things that they have on cars today. For instance, uh, I'll just name a few, I'm sure you know them. Lane keep assist, blind spot detection, automatic emergency braking, backup cameras, airbags, anti-lock brakes, electronic stability control. I even recently heard about autopilot. You guys heard about autopilot? Cars with autopilot. Can you believe that? Now, back when I learned to drive, there were only two or three technological advances. No, I didn't drive a horse and buggy. I just want to make that clear. But back when I learned to drive, there were three things that you really wanted to have in your car if you could. <laughs> Not that far back. <laughs> Automatic transmission was one. Power steering. And power what? Brakes. Power, power brakes in those days were an amazing thing because they could never get the pressure right and you'd step on it and you thought you were stepping on it lightly and right into the windshield. <laughs> yeah, power steering, power brakes. I was, I was reading about power steering in preparation for today and you'll, I hope I'll make the connection in a second for you, but one website said, first introduced in 1951, every car today uses hydraulic or electric electric power to steer. It used to be that if you wanted to drive, you had to have the arms for it. I love that statement. 
It used to be if you wanted to drive, you had to have the arms for it. You know, in those days, you didn't have to go to the gym. All you had to do was buy a car <laughs> without power steering. And, <laughs> and you would work those arms and, and build them up. But the, this writer went on to say, older cars didn't have power steering, and parking and even turning at low speeds could require a lot of strength to move the steering wheel on a big and heavy car. So what did they do? They gave a power assist to the steering, a power assist to the brakes. Well, that's what I hope that you'll remember when you think about Acts chapter 2. God gave the Holy Spirit to the church to be a power assist for your life and my life. God gave the Holy Spirit to the church on the day of Pentecost, which Acts chapter 2 talks about, to be a power assist to your life, to my life, to be a power assist for us in the area of evangelism, in the area of witnessing. Why is it that we seem to be so ineffective in our witness? We seem to be so ineffective with our evangelism. I think it's because we've forgotten that God gave us a power assist. So instead, we're apt to think about methods and strategies, and we have campaigns, and we forget that God gave every one of us who are members of His church, the body of Christ, God gave every one of us the Holy Spirit to not only to assist us, but to empower us to be His witnesses. Too often when you and I think about Acts chapter 2, all we want to talk about is tongues. What does tongue, tongues mean? Please get past that. Please get past We will talk about it next week. We're not going to get to it today. We will next week. But please get past that. Because the main thing that God wants to share with us, the main thing that He wants us to see from Acts chapter 2 is it was a momentous day in so many ways, a few of which we'll talk about in a second. It was a momentous day in God's dealings with mankind. And on that day, He sent the Holy Spirit to form the church out of Jew and Gentile, putting them together in one body on an equal footing, and he formed the church. And he gave you and me, the Holy Spirit, to live within us, to indwell us, to fill us, to baptize us, to do all of those ministries we talked about a few weeks ago, and we'll talk about a little bit next week, to do all of those ministries to empower you and to empower me to be the most effective witnesses. Witnessing isn't about methods. They can be helpful. It isn't about strategies. They can be helpful. Witnessing is about recognizing that as you and I share our faith, there is a spiritual dynamic and if that spiritual dynamic is not present, we won't be effective. God has given us, in a way of speaking, God has given us a power assist. A power assist. 
Well, Warren Wiersbe said this, the early church had none of the things that we think are so essential for success today. Buildings, money, political influence, social status, and yet the church won multitudes to Christ and saw many churches established throughout the Roman world. Why? Wiersbe asked. Why is that? His answer is because the church had the power of the Holy Spirit energizing its ministry. They were a people who were ignited by the Spirit of God. They were a people who were ignited by the Spirit of God. That same Holy Spirit power is available to us today to make us more effective witnesses for Christ. He quotes Vance Havner, another of my favorite writers, who said this, We are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. That's how we're going to change the world. By recognizing the spiritual dynamic that God has made available to every one of us who name the name of Jesus Christ. Well, G. Campbell Morgan has said that Acts 1.8, which we studied a couple of weeks ago, expresses the mission of the church. Do you remember Acts 1.8? I hope you do. Acts 1.8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That expresses the mission of the church. However, Acts chapter 2 and verse 4 declares the secret of our power. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. The secret of our power. We have our mission, that is to witness, but the secret is of our power is to be under the control of God's Spirit to recognize the spiritual dimension of sharing our faith with others. Well, Morgan went on to say this, and I really, I really like, I think he's really hit the nail on the head. As the church has grown, she has ever been enriched by the natural abilities of all her members. In other words, it is true. You and I have natural abilities, and the church is enriched by our natural abilities but morgan goes on those wonderful capacities resident within human lives are all needed and must be dedicated to the work of of witnessing but but he says none of them is of any use whatever apart from the holy spirit in other words all of your talents all of my talents all of our natural abilities are useless apart from the Holy Spirit of God. They're useless apart from you and me allowing the Holy Spirit to dominate and fill our lives, to help us to live according to the Word. He also went on to say this, this is the wonder and glory of the Spirit-filled life. All natural gifts which in themselves are powerless to witness for Christ are by the Spirit cleansed, energized, and directed 
so that they may become the media through which Christ is made known. The story of the Acts and of the whole church, insofar as it is the story of the victories of Christ, is the story of the capture and employment of all natural human capacities by Christ through His Holy Spirit. Another writer said it this way, in all successful witnessing, the power is that of the Spirit. In all successful witnessing, the power is that of the Spirit. Well, Acts chapter 2, as we've been looking at, is a pivotal chapter in God's dealings with humankind. In Acts chapter 2, the church is birthed. In Acts chapter 2, the age of grace is inaugurated. The age of the Spirit is inaugurated. It's a momentous chapter in the Word of God. We're going to look at the ministries of the Holy Spirit some more as we study this, these chapters next week. This is a momentous chapter in God's dealing with mankind. And it's not surprising that it should be accompanied by unusual phenomenon. Often when God does a new thing, it's often accompanied by unusual phenomena. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 2. That's how we can understand the sound of the wind. That's how we can understand the, the fire that, that separated and found each of the 120 believers. Well, look at what all of that means as we look at this passage this morning. Well, when the day of Pentecost came, Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, they were all together in one place. Now, the day of Pentecost is one of the festivals that Israel was to observe. If you want some details about the festivals, look at Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 will have details about the festivals of Israel. The day of Pentecost was the fourth of the first four festivals in Israel. The first of the first four festivals in Israel. The first one in the first month of the Jewish calendar was Passover. And you and I are familiar with Passover that happened uh, the first month of the Jewish calendar is Nisan, or Nisan, and uh, Passover occurred on Nisan day 14, the 14th day of Nisan. The next festival was that of unleavened bread. That followed Passover on days 15 through 21. And then the third festival on Nisan 21 was the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits. Now, we'll talk about those in just a moment briefly. The fourth festival followed 50 days after First Fruits, and that's the one we're talking about in Acts chapter 2, and that is the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost. So those are the first four of the, of the Jewish calendar. Now, Pentecost 
uh, was one of the three festivals that all Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate every year. Every year, every Jewish man was to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, to celebrate Passover, and to celebrate Tabernacles. Those three festivals they were to go and celebrate each year. So, if every Jew who could possibly travel from wherever in the world they had been dispersed in the diaspora, that is the dispersion of the Jews when the northern kingdom and southern kingdoms were destroyed of Israel, they would come to Jerusalem. Now what does that tell you about Acts chapter 2 and how many people would be in Jerusalem at this time? It would be a large amount. It would be a large amount because every Jewish man from anywhere in the world who could make it to Jerusalem had to go to Jerusalem for those three festivals, one of which is Pentecost. One of which is Pentecost. Now, scholars are debating about how many people that could be. Some people thought it was, some, some scholars believe there were millions of people in Jerusalem at this time that the city has swelled up to millions. Others believe that because of the small size of Jerusalem, that it's unrealistic to think in terms of millions, they believe it was somewhere under 200,000 people. That's still a pretty good crowd, don't you think? That's still a pretty good crowd. So somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000, uh, so there's it's up for speculation how many, but there were probably at least 150 to 200,000. The city swelled to three or four times its size. So there were a lot of people from all over the world. That's what makes Acts chapter 2 so interesting when we get to verses 5 to 13. And we hear, uh, we, we read where people, Jews from all over the world, heard the 120 praising God in their own language. In their own language. So, Jerusalem would have been swelled to several times its size. Now, of these first four feasts, each one is considered an outline of the work of Christ, in the words of one writer. Each one is considered an outline of the work of Christ. <clears throat> For instance, Passover has obvious reference to Christ. Jesus was sacrificed for us as our what? Passover lamb. As our Passover lamb. Jesus was sacrificed for us as our Passover lamb. Unleavened bread, the second of the four, first four festivals. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, has reference to our walk separated from sin. Leaven, leaven is used in the scripture as leaven which is yeast, as you know. Leaven is seen most times. Now there's... At least one occasion in the scripture where this isn't so. 
but almost every time but one in Scripture where you see leaven or yeast, it is a symbol of what? Sin. A symbol of sin. And so the feast or festival of unleavened bread would speak to you and to me of our walk separated from sin. Our walk separated from sin. The third festival is that of the feast of first fruits. The feast of first fruits. And that pictures the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 to 23 talks about that. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those alive from the dead. There would be many, many, many to follow him. But he's the first fruits. And first fruits pictures the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The Feast of Pentecost, the one that we're talking about this morning, celebrates the giving of the Holy Spirit and the formation of the church. The church was born on the day of Pentecost. The church was born on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit came. And you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the baptism of the Spirit, all that the baptism of the Spirit is, it only happens to every believer one time in their lives. It's not repeated. It happens one time at the moment of salvation. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us that is, it is the Holy Spirit placing the believer in the body of Christ. The minute you put your faith in Christ, the minute I put my faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit placed us into the church, church placed us into the body of Christ. Well, the Feast of Pentecost celebrates the giving of the Holy Spirit. It celebrates the formation of the church. The Jews, interestingly enough, celebrated the Feast of Pentecost as the giving of the law. The giving of the law. Well, the Feast of Pentecost symbolizes what happened on the day of Pentecost in the formation of the church. What happened in the formation of the church? The, Jew, the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit took Jew and Gentile and put them together in one body. Put them together in one body. On Pentecost, and you can read these regulations in Leviticus chapter 23, as well as Deuteronomy 16, you can read the regulations for Pentecost. But on the day of Pentecost, the priest would present two loaves of bread before the Lord in a wave offering. And there are many who see the symbolism there that as the priest and the day of Pentecost, the festival of Pentecost, would wave two loaves, that on the day of Pentecost, God would take those two loaves, those two peoples, Jew and Gentile, and put them together in one body. And put them together in one body. Uniting believers in one body, the church. Uniting Jew and Gentile in one body, the church. Now, interestingly enough, in the Feast of Pentecost, the bread that was used 
was leavened bread. Bread made with yeast. It was leavened bread. There's some interesting applications of that. Ray Stedman said the presence of leaven or yeast in the loaves indicates the presence of sin in the church. The church will not be perfect till it gets to heaven. I think that's a good word. The church will not be perfect till it gets to heaven. The presence of leaven in those loaves that the priest waved on the day of Pentecost indicated that the, the presence of sin in the church, the church would not be perfect until it gets to heaven. Stedman said it this way, these loaves of the Old Testament were to be baked with leaven. Leaven is yeast and is a symbol of sin. The wave loaf, off, loaf offering is the only one in the Old Testament that ever had leaven included in it. Why? Because it was God's wonderful way of telling us that the church is not made up of perfect people. Amen? Thank you. You can always get an amen for that. You know, you and I don't have to be in the church and you and I don't have to be believers very long to realize that the church is not perfect and also to look in the mirror and realize we are not perfect. Right. Right. The wave loaf offering, he says, is the only one of the Old Testament that ever had leaven included in it. Why? Because it was God's wonderful way of telling us that the church is not made up of perfect people. It is made up of saints, but they are sinful saints. It is made up of believers who are in the process of becoming what God wants them to be, who have a divine authority and life at work inside them, changing them into the image of Christ. For this reason, the loaves were baked with leaven. What a great picture. The church isn't perfect. The church isn't perfect and won't be until heaven. Well, the day of Pentecost celebrated the conclusion of the harvest. It symbolized two coming together as one in one body. What we read in chapter 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So the question is, who's the all together? And we believe that altogether there references chapter 1 and verse 14. It's talking about all 120 of the believers were together. All 120 of the believers mentioned in chapter 1 were together. Remember what they spent their time doing, especially that 10 days between the ascension of Jesus Christ and the, res and the um, uh, coming of the day of Pentecost. There were 10 days there. What did the early church do? What did those 120 people do? Well, we know they studied the scripture because they came to a conclusion about replacing Judas. We know they studied the scripture. What's another thing that we know they did in those days together? They prayed. They prayed together. They prayed together often. They were of one heart, one accord, and they prayed together. So when it talks about they were all together, we believe it's talking about all 120 of them because they were together this whole time praying with one another. They were together this whole time studying the Word of God together. 
They were in one place. Now, the question comes, what is this one place? There are two possible choices there. They, there are many who believe it's speaking of the temple because the temple is sometimes called a house as, as it is here in chapter 1 and verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 2 and verse 2 of the book of Acts. Temple can be called a house. Stephen called the temple a house in chapter 7 and verse 47. So some believe that they were in the temple at this time. Others believe that the house spoken of here was the house that uh, where the upper room was, the house that they had all been praying in because it occurred in the midst, no doubt, of their study of the Word of God and of prayer the day of Pentecost and the events of the day of Pentecost occurred probably in the house. And at some point, they moved out into a larger area. And we know they had to do that because once the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, once they drew such a great crowd, and by the way, they didn't draw a crowd just because of speaking in tongues. They drew a crowd because of the sound of a mighty wind. They drew a crowd because of the flaming tongues of fire. They drew a crowd because of the things that had happened, the events, the momentous events that had happened. They drew a crowd. And we know that how many were saved on that day. Anybody remember? Thousands. Thousands were saved on that day. So at some point, we believe that probably the, they were in the upper room. They were together, all 120 of them. The events that happened in Acts chapter 2 happened to all 120 of them. And they moved at some point out of the house to the area of the temple where they reached all of those people with one of the most marvelous sermons in all of Scripture that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Well, that's Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And then in verses 2 and 3, he describes an amazing scene. One writer explained it this way. The language of verses 2 and 3 seeks to reduce to simple and intelligible terms an unearthly and indescribable experience. I think that's a good way to describe it. An unearthly and indescribable experience is what happened next. We read in verse 2, Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. The first signal that something unusual was happening, something significant was happening, was that of the sound of a wind. It wasn't wind. Please understand that. It wasn't wind. It was literally a sound as of the blowing of a violent wind. It made the sound, even though there was no wind, it made that sound. And it was designed to draw attention to that house, designed to draw attention to what was going on with these 120 believers. That was the idea behind the sound <clears throat> of the wind. <clears throat> now, throughout my lifetime, I've been in a number of storms, and a lot of them scared me, especially some of them here in Del Rio. We can have great storms here in Del Rio, right? Uh, we have these two beautiful trees out in front of our house, 
and uh, in, a, in a couple of these storms that happen in the springtime when we have severe weather, in a couple of them I look at those trees and I think they're coming through this window any second now because of the, of the way the wind is blowing them and, and the rain and, and all that's going on. But the, the storm that scared me the most in my entire life, and by the way, I, like, so I, I used to like to watch storms a lot, uh, before Del Rio, I used. To, <laughs> in fact, years ago, when I was when I was younger, uh, I was laying in my parents' house, looking out. They had a picture window in the front of that house, and I, I was in the dark, and I was uh, watching a storm off in the distance, and just enjoying it—the lightning and thunder and rain and all that. And my mother came in the room. <laughs> she didn't know I was there, and I frightened her when she discovered I was there. And she said, what are you doing here in the dark? And I said, I'm enjoying the storm. And she said, you're weird. <laughs> I'll always remember that about my mom. She said, you're weird. Uh, but so I, I've enjoyed storms. Uh, some of them here have scared me uh, quite a bit. But there was never any storm that scared me more than happened last year. And that was the windstorm. Do you guys remember the windstorm we had? And... 70 plus mile per hour winds, maybe up to what, 90? It was an unbelievable storm. I had never in my life experienced wind like that. Uh, you know, we had been through many times when the warning siren goes off and all of that, and I usually ignore that. Uh, Kathy says, is it time for us to get in the bathtub? Is it time for us to... Uh, and I said, no, we're fine, everything's good. Well, this was one where she came to me and she handed me a pillow and she had a pillow and she said, we're going to the closet. <laughs> and she was right because it was an unbelievable storm. The sound of that wind was like nothing I ever heard in my life. It really was. It was as frightened as I've ever been in my life in a storm. And I was absolutely certain that whenever it stopped, if it ever did stop, we went outside, there'd be no roof on our house. I could not believe the sound. I could not believe the sound. So you can see where this would attract attention. This would attract attention as something special was happening. But what it is also telling us is that the, the wind is a reference to the Holy Spirit. You see, the word translated spirit is pneuma. Pneuma, the word translated spirit. But it's from a word in Greek, neo, neo, which means not just spirit, but it's also translated wind or breath. Wind or breath. The words are connected. They're together. They're from the same verb, <clears throat> the word for spirit here, and the word for wind, which is noe. They are connected and they are translated sometimes spirit sometimes wind sometimes breath the picture that we are to get here is that this was symbolic of the holy spirit coming and it was symbolic of the holy spirit's power and invisibility symbolic of the holy spirit's power and invisibility we saw that also 
in John chapter 3. Symbolic of the Holy Spirit's power. Symbolic of the Holy Spirit's invisibility. It points to the power and coming of the Holy Spirit. One writer pointed out that in Genesis chapter 1-1, we read that the Spirit of God was covering, hovering over the waters. Now, what picture do you get in your mind when you think of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters? You get a picture of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, right? Like on some kind of hovercraft and just kind of above the water. And uh, That's not what the Hebrew picture is. The Hebrew picture behind that phrase, the, the Spirit of God was hovering, is that the idea as the Spirit of God was blowing over the waters with creative energy. The Holy Spirit was blowing over the waters with creative energy. <clears throat> One writer pointed out that in Genesis 1-1, the creative breath of the Holy Spirit breathed life into matter. In Genesis 2, the creative breath of God breathed life into mankind. Remember, God formed Adam, and then he blew life into his nostrils, the breath of God into his nostrils. In Acts chapter 2, what we have is the creating breath of the Spirit who is forming the church. The creative breath of the Spirit who is forming the church. One writer put it this way, in Acts 2, at the day of Pentecost, here comes the wind of the Spirit of God, again symbolizing the coming of the creative power of God to create and inaugurate a new era in which men and women will be given spiritual life and the church would be created for its mission. Well, the coming of the Spirit and the, the illustration of wind speaks of His power and invisibility. Verse 3, we read, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. The tongues of fire was a visible sign. The wind was an audible, the, the sound of wind was an audible sign. The tongues of fire were a visible sign. Fire represents the presence of God. Whereas wind represents the power of God, fire represents the presence of God. We see that many times through Scripture. There are a lot of Scripture we could go to. Let me give you four real quickly. Genesis 15, 17. The smoking fire pot and the blazing torch in Genesis 15, 17 illustrates the presence of God. Indicates the presence of God. Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 to 6, where... Moses encounters the burning bush. The burning bush symbolizes the presence of God. Exodus 13, verses 21 to 22, the pillar of fire that led Israel, Israel by night symbolized the presence of God. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 18, the Lord descended on Mount Sinai in fire. Fire is a symbol of the presence of God. So we have in verse 2 the power of God. 
coming upon the church, the power of God energizing the church, the power of God energizing your witness and, in my, and my witness. And in verse 3, we have the presence of God. And there's something else that fire symbolizes in Scripture, and that is it symbolizes purity and it symbolizes passion. It symbolizes purity and it symbolizes passion. So we have in chapter in Acts chapter 2, the first three verses, we have the power of God, we have the presence of God, we have the purity, and we have the passion of God. Let me give you an equation. An equation that you might use. Joining the wind and the fire and the equation goes like this power the holy spirit's coming gave us power and plus purity plus passion that equals proclamation the power of the holy spirit the purity and passion of the holy spirit you add those three together and you have proclamation and what is proclamation? It's witness. It's witness. Evangelism. And that brings us full circle. God, on the day of Pentecost, gave us a power assist for our lives. Not just for ourselves, not just so we might live lives better dedicated to Him, lives under the domination and control of the Holy Spirit, but so that you and I might be effective in our witness with you next time you share your faith with somebody remember remember the holy spirit was given to you to make your witness effective count on his power let's pray lord thank you for the power assist you give us in the indwelling holy spirit in our lives lord Help us to remember it's not our gifts alone, it's not our talents alone, but rather it is the Spirit of God using all of those things, empowering us to be witnesses, empowering us to share our faith, not, not through methods and strategies, but by the power of the Spirit through lives that are dedicated to you. Use us to your glory to reach others for Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.